Let's open our Bibles, please, to where? Wow, good, good. You knew it. And yes, we are at the end of chapter 1. James chapter 1, if you would please. You ever had to go fill out forms? Or I think a lot of times it's in hospital areas where they ask you, what's your religion? Ever see those? You know? and, and I look at it and I say, what are they asking me? You know, are they asking me, am I Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, uh, Hindu, uh, Buddhist, or agnostic, or atheist, or whatever? You know? uh, and, and the amount of space they put in there really isn't very much. Or, or are they saying, are you Presbyterian or Methodist? Or whatever else there is. Um, I know some Christians, when they see that or are asked that personally, become offended and said, I don't have a religion. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I said, I understand that. Last Monday, uh, Millie was with uh, some ladies that she's usually with. And uh, one of the ladies was all dressed in green. And she asked Millie, and he says, did you watch the Eagles win yesterday, you know, last Sunday afternoon? And Emily says, no. He says, we were in church, you know. This lady was really an Eagles router. And she's, ah, yeah, that's just like my dad. He says, uh, he loves his football, but he said he would never miss church. And, and out of that statement, she made her father as religious, and, and no doubt viewed us as being religious. Yet, by definition or by common understanding, she religiously follows her, her Philadelphia Eagles, you know. Um, it's an interesting picture. Look at our two verses as we consider this idea of are we religious or are you religious and what does it mean? If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, this corporate body of meeting uh, here in this place, a place of worship, a place of prayer, uh, to begin a new week. We thank you for the word that shines in our life and has provided us in the past with tremendous, powerful truth, not only to redeem us, but to correct us, to instruct us, to build us up. And we're thankful for that. We're able to meet here today to consider this uh, passage that James has provided for uh, our, our edification. Uh, we thank you for the truth that it provides, and not because your servant would say anything, but because the Spirit of God would be our teacher and help us to understand and apply these truths. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I trust you all recall, recalled last week's sermon, uh, except for those who weren't here. Uh, <laughs> I had to say that he divided the two groups of people, his listeners, into uh, an area or an aspect of, 
of, of, of ministry where one group was the hearers but not doers of the word and the other group was the hearers of the word. And he says, I liken these who are hearers of the word to not doers of the word to people who go and would look in the mirror and observe what's there and then walk away from it and not remember what they saw. And that's something we all can relate to. And he says, according as the word goes out, he says, they come and they're before the word, they see it, they listen to it. But he says, once they're out of that context, there's no application, no receiving it within the heart. He says, it's gone, it disappears. But then he says, the other group that he was speaking to, or the hear and doer group, he says, they came to the word as, as the, uh, the law of liberty, not as a burden, but as a truth that came unto the people, and they looked into that. The law of liberty was obeyed, and God blessed that as in matter of obedience. Now we come to these last two verses of this chapter, and I don't want you to think that James has left the topic. He hasn't jumped to something else. He's continuing on the same topic. But with the understanding that what he showed in what's called a simile, a reference to a mirror and so forth, teaching a lesson, now he shows us in practical ways of understanding this same truth, this same principle that's before us. If any man among you seem to be religious, this isn't me looking at him. He seems to be religious. But this is the man as he sees himself, as he understands himself, as he accepts himself. Uh, this is what he claims to be in his appearance and in images of himself as being religious. The word religious means someone who is careful to keep the external service of God visible. And we all like to do that. In other words, we don't come in uh, to God's house or we don't approach our devotions or whatever it is and, and just slovenly go about it. We, we do it with great care and love. But in this one, it is the outside only. This man attends his worship services. He carries around his King James reference Bible. He even sings in the choir. He even has his radio tuned to the Christian radio stations. That This is what helps him see that he is seemingly on the outside, but he's lacking in the inside. Because as the verse continues, he says, the rest of the verse shows us that it indicates he cannot bridle his tongue. What's seen on the outside, there's evidence of something different on the inside, and it's a matter of his tongue. What does it mean to bridle the tongue? Our horse lady over here is absent. Um, uh, she would understand. It's put a, a rein on it to control it. And in the tense that's here, this is a constant, an ongoing thing. Uh, having the tongue controlled. Jesus constantly draws our attention to the condition of the heart. Because the condition of the heart dictates what comes from the mouth and what is done in life application itself. Solomon says, For as he, a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. And it's true, isn't it? As I think. It's just a matter of mental process, but it's my heart direction. As I process those things, so I am, so I say, so I do. And we're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about it's really a focus on the heart itself. To begin to bridle or rein the tongue must first begin in transformation of reigning in the heart. That's where the source is of all things. 
Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There was a day then quarters were readily available, but I didn't have a quarter with me, and I asked my wife, and she didn't have a quarter, and I asked Faith, and she didn't have a quarter. Thankfully, her mom did. Piece of foil, a quarter. And I take the foil, and I wrap it around the quarter, and I press on that side, and I pull it away, and I've got an exact image of that side of the quarter. This is exactly what the apostle is saying. He says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't take on its image. Don't allow it to be the stamp in your life as what it does and what it thinks and how it resolves uh, other, other situations of life. Don't allow that to happen. But he says, be transformed. A change. A change in my thinking, my heart. Hence, it will show in other areas of life. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of the mind, it's a refreshing, a change of my heart and mind, that you can prove what's good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, what? Think on these things. It's not just thinking, preparing for a test, but it's thinking and my heart to say, this is something that my heart has to accept and make changes in. That's the difference of all that he is presenting to us. If a man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, and again, this is godly self-control over our speech, because all of us, you know, take the top rein on that, have some abuses with our tongue in one fashion or another. And it's a matter of him saying, but, because this is being revealed with his tongue not being deceived, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. He's thinking, I'm all right, but blankety, blankety, blank, you know or temper, or whatever the aspect is. He's saying, you're deceiving yourself, and things aren't right. Jesus called the Pharisees, who in their own eyes said that we're righteous people. Uh, they saw themselves as being what epitomized the law of God and what was expected of others. And he said, you are whitewashed sepulchers, the tombs. And they go on the outside, spruce them all up, but he says, on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. And he says, that's the, 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 the picture of the man who presumes himself to be righteous on the outside, but interior-wise, there's much work that needs to be done. So to think of myself as religious is self-deceptive. If my heart is corrupt, if I have not made the seat of my heart the throne of Jesus Christ, if that's not the case, then all is worthless, all is vain. If I'm truly corrupt on the inside, it will eventually be revealed 
on the outside by my speech and my religion will prove worthless. I got a paragraph I found really interesting and listen to it and then at the end I'll tell you where it came from. Many Christians attend church every Sunday. Many Jews go to synagogue every Saturday. Lots of Muslims, Hindus, and Jews keep their dietary laws. But not all of them do it out of a love for their Lord. Sometimes their actions have very practical reasons. For some, they provide a sense of identity. For others, attending services looks good. It paints a picture of respectability. They keep up appearances to obtain credibility and standing in the community. None of these indicate that the individual is, in fact, spiritually oriented. They might simultaneously, in practice, be ruthless businessmen, corrupt politicians, members of organized crime groups, thieves, adulterers. True, isn't it? So the exterior can be put up for various reasons, you know, and someone will say, I am this and I am that, but within the inside, he says, hey, there's dead man's bones. You know who wrote that? Baha'i faith. <laughs> a Baha'i faith, which is a, 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 a soup of all types of things, you know, grand unity among all religions, and it's just garbage. But they perceive that there is the possibility, no, there, that there is the reality that religions in the world do not always represent what their heart is in the proper way. They point out this principle of hypocrisy. I deceive myself if I hear the word and I fail to obey it. I deceive myself if I have the pretense of Christianity displayed on the outside, but my heart is not the Lord's. And that deception can go on and on and on and on in such a terrible way. I had a dear friend who was a in, and she had finished her college, she had a degree in music and just had a gorgeous voice. And she was hired by a Second Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh to sing as a professional singer. Most of the, she said most of the choir were professional singers, you know. And she said, we sang because I loved the music, but she said, spiritually, they were dead man's bones. It was all a paid act, all a paid act. Now, Verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So if verse 26 represents worthless religion, verse 27 is the real McCoy. It's a litmus test for this is real, and this is not. This is unworthy, and this is worthy. This is, this is what James is showing them, the picture of the reality of what was happening in their lives. Here James uses the word religion synonymously with belief. So if an empty religion is made known by the tongue, then a pure religion is made known, as he said here, by the revelation of what it produces. He says it's called pure, pure religion. It's, this is genuine. This is sincere. It's not a front. And it's 
not a prop off for self or recognition, but it is admittedly saying, I have a total dependence on Christ. I have nothing to offer. It's Christ and Christ alone. Here he says the litmus test to show that it is so is in two areas. First, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and the second one, to keep himself unspotted in the world. In other words, the litmus test for the true believer is charity and pureness. Charity and purity. I don't want you to misread these words in thinking that Jesus has come to James in the teaching that religion is good works, that God will accept us, will make us right and just in his sight because I do the good works. But what he's saying, he says, from the heart, he says, my conduct produces good works because there was first a work in my heart through Christ to make me do those and bring those transforming good works about. So look at these two, if you would, with me. The first, to visit fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Don't, don't, don't necessarily see it here in the English, but in the Greek, it's uh, widows and fatherless have no conjunction. There's no and in there. So in other words, as the author puts it down, guided by the Holy Spirit, he says these two are almost synonymous, widows and orphans. Their affliction is the same. I think you'll have to admit these two groups of people all through the Bible, all through history, even up to today, are probably the most afflicted people in the world, and they always have been, and probably always will be. Yet what does it mean to say to visit these groups. Well, it's not stopping by and saying, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. All right, we'll see you later. You know, <laughs> to visit, as is oftentimes mentioned throughout Old Testament and New Testament, it's an idea of coming and presenting yourselves and saying, what can I do for you? I'm, I'm interested in you. I have a, 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 an evidence of something taking place in your life. How can I help out? And when you think of the life of Christ and the ministry that he and the disciples had in those short, brief times, and then after that, that was their whole intent. He says, it's not about me anymore, but it's about this horizontal ministry that I have with others. He says, to visit them means I'm sticking my nose in their business, and what can I do to help you out? There are some 163 million orphans in the world today. 163 million and a small, smaller percentage of that are without father and without mother. A tragedy that has all part of our day. There's an estimated 12 million homeless children in the streets of Brazil. Parents lost them in the crowd. They just got rid of them because they couldn't take care of them. Or the parents died. As the years have gone on, it's kind of become a, a, a public uh, nuisance uh, vermin, they're often called. They beg, they steal, they sell their bodies, they eat garbage. Twenty years ago, there were policemen and others who were moonlighting in getting rid of the vermin. It was their purpose, my guess, is behind the business people of the area of the community, just to kill these kids and get rid of them. And they're uh, a shame on the country of Brazil and yet it shows their attitude towards these children. 
Philippine government estimates there are approximately 15,000 child prostitutes in Manila between the age of 9 and 12, just in the capital city. In the country of Thailand, there are 800,000 girls estimated between 12 and 16 that are involved in prostitution. Orphans? Tragedy? Who cares? In 1836, George Mueller, within the bounds of England, saw what was taking place in his own country, child labor and so forth. He established a ministry of wide variety, but by the time he died, he had cared for 10,024 orphans in his orphanages. He established 117 schools and offered Christian education to more than 120,000 children in England. One man, by faith and trust in God. That says 170 years ago. And besides, don't we have government agencies to take care of orphans? Isn't that what the government's responsibility is? From the cradle to the grave to see that they're fed and cared for and educated and propped up? Isn't that the government's job? Kind of reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And for the callousness that we see in Ebenezer Scrooge, we kind of wonder ourselves at our response. Christian compassion, brethren, begins where we live and where we see. Just not necessarily orphans and widows, but the compassion that Christ has shown to us in what we do in life. Do you know of any single parents in your community, your family? We used to live next to a four-story, five-story apartment in Germantown, part of Philadelphia. And Sunday mornings, we'd see the moms come out and load up the kids in the vans, all dressed up for church. Lead them out every Monday through Friday, getting into school. Not a, not a reckoning of, of a man in any one of those. I can't help but feel that there were no dads in those families. Christian compassion. Do we have a thought for what might take place if the love of Christ was shown into them, to step in and offer, to help, to give what the Lord enables, and to think about it, I think oftentimes we are so doctrinally pure that we're practically worthless. We hold to the, the great doctrines of Scripture and, and the purity of what these things say, and yet a majority of what's displayed through the words of Christ to his disciples, to those who are around him, was to show the love of Christ in the lives that were there. They weren't, if you think of the, if the change that took place from the resurrection of Christ to the first couple hundred years, the church just exploded. Is that because they had so many evangelists? Were there seminaries pumping out teachers and preachers? It's because the change of life and the way people did business and the way they acted to each other and the way they showed the love of Christ. And we say, well, that's just nothing but what the liberals talk about. Well, the liberals talk about it, and we diss that because they've lost the doctrine, but we've lost the practical application of it. It's in all aspects of life. What about the widows? It seems that they have become the casualty of a modernized society. 
You can't retrain them, you know. They can't be women of the new age, you know. It's tragic the way they're looked at. I've done more than a few nursing home services, and I've come to recognize the majority of nursing homes are filled with women, not too many men. Maybe the men die off and the women just live longer or whatever, you know. But we've done enough of them to be able to sit through the services throughout the year and come to find out that they get visited at Christmas and at Easter and at a birthday time. But the rest of the time, it's a convenience for the children to put them in a home and just leave them there because they'll be taken care of. They'll be watched over. Taste of Joy, a book written by Calvin Miller, writes about a wealthy woman who was found dead in her home. She lived alone. The coroner found no organic reason for her death. Miller commented, I think the cause was neglect. She was weary of setting a single plate at the table, fixing her coffee one cup at a time. The old woman had written on her calendar only one phrase, no one came today. So we just don't. We're, we're, we are a very oftentimes self-centered people. We're protecting our own. We've put a hedge about us. And yet what we have is not only the greatest responsibility, but the greatest answer to meet the needs of the people around us. It is Christ. But how do you access that? You access it through a love and a compassion that Christ was himself. Here's something from an unknown author. He says, I was hungry and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter in the love of God. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray with for me. You seemed to be holy, so God chose so so chose so close to God, but I am still hungry and I'm still lonely and I'm still cold. It doesn't mean that we all of a sudden do something, but there needs to be a a conscious understanding of what James is laying before them in this brand new church, this first century situation. He says, what you're taking in doctrinally, what Jesus had done and said in, in what we have in this particular letter, you've got to apply it. And it's no different today. It's no different today. The application of pure religion begins when I take what I glean from the Word, guided by the Holy Spirit, and act on what God wants us to act on. Not just as Christians, you know, we do that, but we need to. Charity is more than caring for orphans and widows. Charity is an across-the-board attitude. Pure religion and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So the picture of one aspect, a matter of charity, seems to be very evident in James' words. But now he says, you've got another responsibility to show 
that you are a child of God, that you are uh, digging into the word, and it's the matter of purity. Pure religion, James exhorts, is keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. This doesn't mean hiding in a cave, and there were those in, in church history who did that. They felt that humans were corrupt and full of sin. Therefore, if I stay away from them, if I live in a part of the country, up in a cave, and nobody can influence me, therefore I'll be free from sin. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about going to Montana and finding a nice cabin up there and fish all day long, although that might not be a bad idea. I might enjoy that myself. But it does mean that the world is to have a less and less stamp on me as I draw closer to Jesus. Remember the quarter. The stamp, is, the stamp is evident in our lives. And yet, as time goes on, as the word permeates my heart, as the reality of what God is doing in my life, all of a sudden the image becomes less and less. Things that I say, the way I deal in business, the way that I treat other people, the way that I value my time and I consider the relationship within the body of Christ. All of a sudden, I don't do it like the world anymore. I start to do it like Christ would have me to do it. I've mentioned tattoos before, and you know what I think about them. If you got one, that's fine. That's between you and the Lord, and I'll love you still the same amount. But I can't help but believe the more that I see them so evident that there is an, an, an influence in the world that's a, that's a, that's a visible influence, you know, that's pulling people along. This election, how people voted, I believe had a direct correlation in their views on abortion or the legality of same-sex marriage and other things that were of grave concern to us. There is an influence in the world that strongly affects the way people think and act. As, as a man thinks, so is he. And so the influence continues to work in, and it's very slow. It's repeating again and again. You remember Lot, dear Lot? had a great life with Abram. He got to the place where the animals were getting a little too many, and there were fights between the herders of Abram's flocks and, and Lot's flocks, and he said, we better split up. Abram says, you want down here or do you want over here? And Abram says, he looked down to the valley of Sodom. And he says, I like the green fields and the running streams. And he goes down there and the passage says that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And then a little bit later he says he's there at Sodom. And then eventually he's at the gate of Sodom. And in other words, he's a judge in the city of Sodom. In other words, he slowly, and, and, and the scripture calls him righteous lot. But it's possible for the world to creep in to me by just rubbing shoulders with it so much and not having a, a, a way out, not knowing truth of what God's word says. Christmas cards will be coming around, and decorations. Y'all do decorations already? Do you have glitter on stuff? Oh. <laughs> the grandkids, I haven't seen them so much right now, but there are times when they are little, mom would give them some construction paper and put the glue down, and then they get the glitter and they dump it on like that, you know. And it says, here, Grandpa, here's your card, you know. 
and it's on my hands, and I go like this, and it's on this, and it's, it's, just, it's just everywhere. You, and wherever you go, and you get the vacuum on, you're still sweeping up glitter for months ahead. That's just what the world does. Tiny little specks, a little bit of involvement, and it just kind of creeps into every aspect of our life. He says, he says keep himself unspotted from the world. Doesn't mean that the world you're going to live outside of it. You're living in it, but don't let it affect you. And how do we do that? Well, it comes from our walk with the Lord in his word. It comes from a recognition of what Christ has done. And when I have sinned, I can come to him and he does forgive me. I have to recognize that the promises of God are sure and they are offered up to me freely to dine at and to partake of and to enjoy, to recognize those principles. Let me close with this. There was a story of a gray-haired old lady. Sorry if there are any gray-haired old ladies here. She had finished church and going out and shaking hands with the pastor on the way out. And she says, Pastor, he says, I just love that message today. He says, everything you said in that message, I can think of somebody who needs to hear it. You know, and we can sit here and we can discuss the, the aspects of, of the tongue or of, of, of purity or various aspects here. And I can think of somebody who could really benefit by that. I have to look into the mirror, the pure law of liberty, and say, Lord, cause me to see it. May the, may the lesson be to me in my heart. And from my heart to have that work change me. And it begins within that aspect. And all of a sudden, we, we become an influence for godliness. We become an influence for godliness. I'll close with this. Millie and I went to see I Heard the Bells Yesterday. Um, Christian movie by Sight and Sound. Uh, it's not around. They only had it out for like a week or so. But it's about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, he was the American poet. Uh, just a marvelous situation. Had... Uh, lost his first wife when he says he was a Harvard uh, professor and they sent him overseas and she was pregnant. Lost the baby uh, on the way over and, and the, the wife died, which was crushing. He found this next young lady and, and they were just inseparable. Uh, they, had, uh, they lost one child, but they had one, two, what, three girls, I think? Three girls and two sons. And um, uh, she was there working on... Uh, uh, putting a seal, wax seal on, on letters. And um, uh, she turned around and the, the candle fell on her big southern or hoop skirt and burned her and she died. Uh, he went ahead and, and got burned himself in his hands and his face. And that's why you see Longfellow's face with a big, big beard to cover up the scars on his face. Um, his, his oldest son, uh, wanted to join the Union Army, and his dad forbade him because the wife made him promise that you're not going to join, we're not going to lose another child. And uh, there was a big rift between the two of them. He went up and joined the Union Army and ended up getting shot and uh, said some very powerful things. Um, but long story short, uh, they found out that the mother's uh, walk with the Lord really brought Longfellow and eventually the son back under the understanding of their relationship to, to God. And a lot of his writings later on in life really showed that Christ was all in all to him. It took a while, 
the, the, the sanctifying process, the changing process, but it was only in one man and that it affected others. That's what God does in us, you know. Well, how it affects whatever else, uh, it's up to him. Charity and purity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that we are able to come to your banquet table uh, whenever we want, really, and to feast from your word, finding promises that are so precious. Some of them have been real rescuers. Some of them have been painful to receive and read because it's poked at our heart. It's talked to our conscience. It's made us see ourselves as we truly are. And we thank you yet for them. As we close this particular chapter of this letter of James, we thank you that the challenge he presented to those first century Jewish Christians was real. His heart's desire was that they would joy in the struggles that they were going through in life, knowing that those struggles were permitted by a sovereign God to bring them closer to him. And so it becomes evident as they drew closer that it would be seen in their charity and their love for each other, their responsibilities to a community that they lived in, but also that there would be a love for the purity of the doctrine of truth. So, Father, these things, especially in this time of year, when there's an outpouring of love uh, seemingly on the surface at Christmas, may our outpouring of love for those around us be true and valuable. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.